Yeah, it's the Casimir engine back again. Uh, episode 37. Oh, I'm living the dream tonight as well. Absolutely living the dream. You're listening to the Casimir engine. That is me. Hasn't that been done today? Isn't that so 990s? You think so? Casimir engine. It's the Casimir engine. It's not Kakaka. Hey, Kaz, you've got, like, your backing music on already. Why why have you not got proper music on? I'll tell you why. Because I'm taking a bit of a back seat tonight. I've, uh, I was lucky enough uh, last week to have a trip uh, to a place in between Ambergate and Watt Stanwell called the Wireworks... And I met Max Vaughan from White Peak Distillery. And we had a chat about everything to do with whiskey and gin. And we just chatted for ages. So it's it's a two-parter. How do you mean a two-parter? Well, what I've done is... I've, uh, I've done a show um, with part one. And then I'm going to do... On Tuesday, I'm going to release uh, part two. Did you just say part two twice? I think so. Anyway, so I'll do part one, and then I'm going to do part two. So we had a chat at the fantastic White Peak Distillery. The place is gorgeous. I just wanted to move in. It was one of them kind of places. Um, so we're going to have a chat with um, with Max. Whilst I, I'm going to just sit back and listen to myself <laughs> and Max chatting... Whilst I'm eating, oh, I've found something cool. I've just popped one. A migob. Mini. I think they're called Jaffa Cake Nibbles. So I've got a bag of them. I'm going to sit back. And I'm going to enjoy listening to Max telling me all about whiskey. What could go wrong? You're listening to the Casimir Engine Show. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on at Casimir Podcast on Twitter, at Casimir Podcast on Facebook, or the Casimir Engine Show podcast on Facebook, and www.casimirengineshow.com. No, sorry, what? It's www.casimirengine.com. Hey, let's have a chat with Max. Yeah, it's, it's it's a weird one. I've never been on this um, on this industrial estate, and it's when you cross over the river, it's fantastic that bridge. Is yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's decades old as well. That bridge is so. it. Yeah, yeah. And this whole site was um, it originally was a forge on this site that was owned by a family called the Hurt family. Which oh, is the why Hurt, the Hurtons put. Ah, so right, they were yeah. wealthy landowners, yeah. and they owned a forge that was on here. And in fact, the forge is, as we understand it, was originally located under the building that our distillery is in. Okay. Um, and that forge, I think, amongst other things, I think it used to supply some of the metal to the nail working community in Belpa. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but the, um, the 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 Johnson family moved in here in the 1870s and established the, the what became the wireworks. Yeah. Um, and 1876 is when they started up. 
But yeah, the access over that river has existed, I don't know exactly how many years, but decades. Yeah. Um, but it used to t- it used to take big heavy wagons yeah. carrying cable and wire and that kind of stuff. I so didn't even know it was the wire works. Yeah, yeah. So this whole site used to be a wire works. It was Johnson and Nephew was the name of the wire works. Yeah, started in the eighteen seventies, and eventually closed in the mid nineteen nineties. So it operated for one hundred and twenty years, wow. mainly under that same ownership. Yeah, um, but and they used to make a whole range of stuff. So they made. Uh, cable, really big cable. Yeah. And back in the day, as I understand it, they were they were very entrepreneurial, and they developed very high quality methods of making cable that could survive in harsh environments. Okay. So I think the first subsea cable for telegraph communications between England and mainland Europe yeah. was made by Johnson and Nephew. Uh, they made similar cables for suspension bridges. Allegedly, I've not verified this, but someone told me that they made a cable that was rolled out behind the troops for the D-Day landing, so that it was a communication, like a cord, yeah. you know, back to the mothership. Um, so that's one of the scale. And then they made 10 or 12 different brands of barbed wire, um, you know, at the other end of the scale. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's 300,000 square foot of buildings on this site, and at one point in time they employed 500 people, and it was all a wireworks. Incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah, so we're in what used to be the maintenance and the stores sheds. Okay. Where we're sat here is a small, just on the gable end of this building, but just beyond that wall is, a, is the old secure stores for all of the spare parts that they needed to maintain the winemaking kit. And then the engineers, where our distillery is through there, had their... Uh, workshops yeah. and desks etc in yeah. that space and where we are used to be the the one of two chief engineers used to have their offices in here wow it's a beautiful place we'd better introduce mm. now we've been chatting we've yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Max Vaughan welcome to the Casimir Engine Show podcast thank you
we've been kind of communicating on emails and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and you, well, you better, you better ex- explain. Well, I tell you what, I wrote a few questions. Yeah. I just got a few questions because what I, what I tend to do is babble and it just goes on for hours and hours and hours. And I know your time is right. Is pretty precious, but um, I can do that as well. Well, I tell you what, the first one, and we we tend this was. I'll explain the reason for the question, but I used to do a radio show and it was one of those things where you're kind of desperate for some kind of content whatsoever. And I got criticised because one of my friends said, oh, you're going to eventually going to be, what's your favourite colour of jelly? So I thought I'll carry that into the podcast. So, Max, what's your favourite colour of jelly? I'll tell you what, I've not got a favourite colour, I've got a favourite type of jelly. Okay. And it's the jelly around the pork pie. Wow, now that's oh, that's a good one. But there's a, there's a story behind that. One of my best mates is from Lancashire, and yeah. I don't know how we got onto the subject of discussing pork pies, but we did. Um, <laughs> As you do. Yeah, I think it was a Christmas before last. But I discovered that from his neck of the woods, people have their pork pies warm. Mm. So he and I went and bought some pork pie and stuck it in an oven. So after nearly 50 years on this planet, I had a a warm, warm pork pie, pie and actually it's so much nicer so that the kind of the melted jelly is um, is what I like about the I pork think pie it, yeah it's a, it's a northern thing I, w- I was in a hotel in Yorkshire and they had a one pound warm pork pie as, right. a, as, a, as, a, as a meal right. in, the, in the pub and I had it and now I know what kind of having a baby feels like <laughs> because it just sits there yeah. right? and I think it just reforms in your stomach yeah. once you've eaten it it just yeah, reforms right. back yeah. into a pork pie yeah but. well I guess that's the way they made it originally so. yeah probably yeah. <laughs> um, I got um, I was expecting gin flavoured jelly right. maybe right and I found there's a recipe from Nigella Lawson Contains 250 milliliters of gin. Oh, interesting. So we yeah. might have to get that. Yeah. One. But um, we've got to explain the, the reason why we say gin then. Um, what do you do, Max? So we are principally a whiskey distillery, actually. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, just to uh, throw that in. So we're, this is the first ever whiskey distillery in the East Midlands or the Peak District or this region. Um, and we started making whiskey last April. Yeah. So we've been laying down casks now for nine months or so. Uh, but whiskey, for those that don't know, is a spirit that has to be aged yeah. before it can be called whiskey. Yeah. And the, the regulations are it's got to be aged for a minimum of three years. Right. So okay. technically, we won't have anything that we could sell as whiskey until the back end of 2021. Which is a tough... Which is a business. tough. It's a tough business. Yeah, any yeah. any business where you're making something, you're spending, <laughs> you're, you're spending money making it. You're obviously paying members yeah. of staff, and then you can't sell it. Is yeah. hard. Um, so some of the things that we're doing now as a business are to try and help with that, that sort of cash flow in the early years. Um, and gin is an example of that, really. Yeah, gin's a, a spirit that doesn't have to be aged. Yeah, we can we can make it. Let it rest for a while, which is what, which is what you should really do if you're making a decent quality gin. So let it rest for a while, but really in the space of ten days, you can go from making it to bottling it, and then yeah. hopefully selling it. So for us, it's a, it's a, it's a product that we can sell and get some cash from. It also means that 
there's something out there that people can look at and consume that tells them a little bit more about what we're doing down here. Because yeah. otherwise, people might know that we're a whiskey distillery and we're busy distilling something, yeah. but they'd have nothing that they can cast their eyes on yeah. to sort of link us with a product. Um, so that's, that, that's another thing it does for us. And then also, we've started doing distillery tours uh, and our tours are like are a sort of tasting tour. Yeah. So they take about an hour and a half. We spend 30 to 40 minutes in the still house walking people through how we make whiskey and how we make gin. And then we come back to this room that we're sat in, our tasting room, and we do a gin tasting. So we've got right. four different styles of gin. Yeah. And so the, that's the other thing that gin does for us. It allows us to sort of have that visitor experience. Yeah, and people... Yeah, yeah otherwise we'd be walking around this distillery... And then there'd be, no, there'd be no sort of nice finale at the end yeah. of it. So it, it really helps in that respect. Uh, and then finally, we're obviously starting to set up contacts, trade contacts, distribution networks and channels that hopefully one day our whiskey will be able to be pushed down as well. Okay. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a lead into the whiskey in a number of ways. Having said that, we're really proud of our gin. It's gone down really well locally. So it's not... It's not as an afterthought per se. It was always part of the sort of business plan, really, to try and survive in the early years because yeah. making whiskies it's it's hard financially for probably five to six years. Okay. I'm so tired of feeling tired all the Placed on every doorsteps Where the moonlight shines off her chest I'm falling down the rabbit hole Where I'll end up I do not know But I'll follow you
So it, it's it's white peat distillery. We're, 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 white, we're, peat distillery. we're, we're white peat distillery. The area that we're in is is called the Derwent Valley. Yeah. So we're in the middle of the Derwent Valley World Heritage Site. We're nearly in the middle of the Derwent. Yeah, right? we're nearly in the middle. We're we're on, we're on the Derwent. Yeah. Um, can yeah, we so see it out? We can actually almost see it instead of that wall. Yeah, the wall's yeah, there just, just to wall. stop anyone that's had too much joint tasting from driving in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the Derwent Valley Mills World Heritage Site extends from Cromford, yes. Arkwright Mill, all the way to the Silk Mill in Derby. That's and it's basically, right. it's a band that goes down the west bank of the Derwent, so we're in it. Um, and we back on to Shining Cliff Woods, yeah. which is a site of special scientific interest. It gets lots of walkers. It's just a lovely place to be. Yeah. Um, but So we've borrowed the Shining Cliff branding for our gin. So our gin is, is under the Shining Cliff uh, label. Fantastic, um, and it's and it'll, it'll be unique to our gin. So, and we've just been talking about um, Shining Cliff is where the tree that from Rockaby Baby, the the, the lullaby, the lullaby, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. So the story, and most of this is verifiable on Crouch Parish records, etc. Okay. But there was a family of charcoal burners, I think originally from Nottingham, as I understand it, who first started coming to Shining Cliff Woods to make charcoal on an ad hoc basis. And I think they loved the woods so much, this was in the 1800s, um, they decided to move here permanently. So they lived in the woods, they were charcoal burners that lived in a sort of mobile hut and they would move around the woods with their hut, depending on where they were plying their charcoal making trade. And they raised eight kids Mm -hmm. and the family were called... No the, telly, obviously. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, lights out. Yeah, yeah, we're sort of early days when the, over yeah. the winter period. But the, the, um, the family would move around, but their favourite place to live was under a yew tree. And the family were called uh, Luke and Betty Kenny. And this yew tree has become known as the Betty Kenny tree. Yeah. And it's about a mile away uh, towards Aldersley Hall. And the, the legend has it that at night or when they were working, Betty would put her babies to sleep in the bough of the yew tree and she'd sing them her lullaby. Oh. And her lullaby yeah. is rockaby baby on a treetop when the wind blows the cradle will rock. So... Yeah, it's all there on Wikipedia. All we've got to do is edit out the bit about them being from Nottingham because they'll claim everybody in Nottinghamshire. <laughs> oh, we'll claim that, and they'll they'll think it's Nottinghamshire yeah. territory in the middle of Derbyshire. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So we've we've borrowed a bit of that because we wanted to do some storytelling on our gin. Yeah. So that's the bottle of our gin. Okay. And you'll see on there it says Rockaby Baby. Oh yeah. And there's an image of Betty and Luke Kenny's yeah. ancient yew tree. And on the back of our label... Oh, yeah, through, the, yeah, through yeah, the glass. There's, a, there's, another, the... there's another picture of the yew tree. And we actually had a wood carving done of that, um, of a yew tree to yeah. produce that on the label. So, yeah, so that's our Shining Cliff Gin. And there's a lot of storytelling around the woods because that's, you know, it's something unique to where we are. So we yeah. decided to sort of celebrate that with... It's a beautiful, gin. I mean, it's a beautiful bottle. And... Uh, and um, we're missing all the beginning of my questions. So I'm <laughs> going right nearly to the end. But 
how important is the is the branding? How important is that story? Because let's let's face facts, gin's a very popular item, and whiskey. You're diving into a a, a market that that the Scots will claim they've they've got a a, a, a right to, and we shouldn't really be yeah. making uh, we shouldn't be making whiskey. But the the gin market is is massive, absolutely massive. I don't know where it came from because I was. Um, I was round at my parents the other day and they've still got a bottle of Gordon's gin that they've had since 1975. Right, yeah. And they used to have a small, like it was almost like a small shot of gin and they'd have some orange cordial in it. But now, of course, we're all ginaholics or whatever. So where, where do you think it all came from? What, what was the... um, I th- There are one or two brands that have been going for a while now who were I suppose early movers in the kind of craft gin movement yeah. and Sipsmith is one of the brands yeah. that's credited with really sort of starting this off um, and I think what's happened is, is it's almost like the craft beer market in a way hmm. it, it started slowly and with Sipsmith I'm guessing was nine or ten years ago when they first got going it's obviously become much more mainstream in the last two or three years but if you've been following that gin curve, it's been yeah. on a steady increase for a decade. And I think it's similar to craft beer is that you get people more interested in something because there's better quality out there, there's more variety out there, and it pulls people in to trying, in this case, gin, which was a product they may have associated with something their grandparents drunk before. Yeah. And all of a sudden you try it one thing, actually, this is not bad. This, yeah. is, this is not like the gin experience I might have had with, let's just say, some of the more traditional brands. Yeah. This is a bit different, a bit more interesting. And I think people probably more interested these days in the provenance of their food and drink. So there's consumers out there yeah. that are wanting to try something that's different, something that might be small batch, small scale, handcrafted locally, whatever it may be. Yeah. And I think gin has tapped into that. Um, and then what's happened is the consumers become more interested and on the supply side there's really the, the barriers to entry for setting up a small gin distillery are relatively low yeah so I saw a map the other day for example Yorkshire has got 50 different gin distilleries 50 50 46 or 50 okay. but let's call it 50 yeah uh, so you look at a map of Yorkshire and it's it's riddled with gin distilleries now, I don't know that every other county in the UK has yeah. got the same number, yeah. but but if you drill down into those fifty, I would, and this is no, this is nothing negative about any of those series, But if you drill down into them, I suspect a lot of them are relatively small and yeah. potentially operating from a some space they've got at home, a spare room, a garage, whatever it may be, because you can set up on a small scale. Surely there's some legislation that prevents you from making gin in your back bedroom. Yeah, well, all you need is... You do don't need give a, any secrets yeah, away. Yeah, no, no. You can't give any secrets you, away. You, you need a licence. Yeah. You need a licence. But the, the principal thing that HMRC are... They're the ones that issue the licence. The principal thing they are concerned about is making sure they get the duty payments yes. that are owed to them on the alcohol. And... Most gin distilleries of a smaller scale are buying in base alcohol where the duty's already been paid. So if okay. you're Her Majesty's Customs and Excise, then 
sure, that person will need a license to make gin. It's actually called a rectifier's license, but they're not creating the alcohol, they're buying in the alcohol, and then they're rectifying it or they're, they're transforming it by adding their herbs and botanicals, whatever they use. So is the, is the base for gin is pure alcohol, well, a watered-down alcohol, I would imagine. It's not going to be pure alcohol, is it, because that's... You start, off, you, start, you start off with ethanol, so right. it's 96% alcohol by volume, and then you do water it down. Yeah. So you water it down. You do that. We do that. So and most ginger syrup is the same. You typically water it down with demineralized water to whatever percentage you want to use as your starting point for the distillation. Mm. And typically you would expect that to be somewhere in the range of 50 to 60% ABV. Uh, and then you, you go through the distillation process and... In, as part of the distillation, you're adding your botanicals, the herbs that you're using, juniper, coriander, yeah. whatever it may be, and the alcohol takes on that flavour profile. So you still, even though this is, we're doing chemistry, I yeah. suppose, here, but even though you're buying in the alcohol, you still have to distill it to combine the flavours of your botanicals, your whatever you're going to put into it. Yes. To get that flavour into the alcohol. Yeah, there are, there are some subtly different ways of doing it, but that's the principal way of doing it. It goes through a distillation process. So you're boiling up the alcohol. Yeah. The alcohol vapours yeah. come off from that process. You collect the vapours or you channel them to a, to a cooling condenser. Yeah. And then they condense back to liquid form. Yeah. And does some, that not increase the alcohol content? Does that make it stronger again? It does. It, it, it does make it stronger again. But what happens is, even though the boiling temperature of water is 100 degrees, once you start to boil up the alcohol, which boils at 75 to 78 degrees Celsius, you still get water vapour coming sort of across the still with it. Right. Okay. So you're, not, you, you're never going to create 100% alcohol. Yeah. Um, so you do increase the strength and then again you dilute it down at the back end before you bottle it but there's a certain strength that works well for the distillation period and then at the back end you decide what strength you're going to bottle it at our gin is 45% yeah there's a lot of most spirits on the supermarket shelves are at 40 yeah and there's a range and you you can pick whatever you like the more alcohol content in the gin, the more duty is going to be payable by the person that's yeah. buying it, so it becomes a more expensive product. Oh, I see. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you get, um, if you get a, a high-strength gin, you are actually paying more duty more, because of yeah. that. Um, and it's interesting. We're going slightly off track here, but there are, there are some spirits out there now which they're, they're almost referred to as gins, but they, they're actually liqueurs. And so they're, they're kind of presented to the, mark, to the gin drinking market. It's not technically a gin because the liqueurs will have a much lower ABV and it could be, let's say, 20 for sake of argument. But people may pick two bottles off a shelf that both look like they may be gin. You can't actually call a liqueur gin, but the label could otherwise suggest yeah. to you that it is a gin. Yeah. And you can pick them both up and you might wonder why one's £40 and one is 20 so it's important to look at the ABV to understand how much alcohol I'm actually buying here. One of my questions was, <laughs> what's the difference between oldie gin 
and and your gym, but I think you've probably just answered that. That that that's one of the differences. Yeah, um, and, and I suppose there's mass produ- there's mass produced gins somewhere in Europe that feeds the yeah there the, are the huge suppliers. There are, and there's there's many there's a lot of gins out there, even within the UK, where they're being branded, marketed, and distributed by company X, but company X is not making the gin. Mm-hmm. They're finding a big distillery that might make gin for 20 different brands. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a bit like own label food in supermarkets. Yeah. Um, so those, dis- those types of distilleries exist. Yeah. Um, and they'll be potentially making gin on a big scale for the likes of Aldi. Yeah. Um, why is our gin different? Well, we, our recipe is unique to us. Um, we're making it here in small batches and we think it's a really good quality gin, but we are trying to celebrate the fact that we are a Derbyshire dry yeah, gin. Yeah. We're in Derbyshire, we've done all this storytelling around Shining Cliff on, yeah. our, on our bottle and label. And we're trying to appeal to people that think, actually, I'd like to go and buy my meat from the local butchers, I'd like to go and buy my fruit and veg from the local fruit and veg shop, and I'm gonna buy local beer and local gin. Yeah. And actually, you can buy local wine as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, we're appealing to people that are interested in the provenance of their food and drink. Just uh, on, the, on the water, is it? I take it, it, it you can't use tap water. What what kind of water do you add? Is it a? Yeah, no, you can just, use tap water. So you just use yeah, the, tap water uh, to water it down. Yeah, it. you don't use pure tap water. No, you basically have to uh, filter out certain things. So. The fluoride and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. We've got a we've got a filter that um, takes out chlorine, for example. Yeah. Um, which there's things that the uh, the seven trends of this world add to stop bacteria building up in the tap water that you yeah. and I drink. Yeah. So we strip that out immediately before we use it for diluting. Yeah. So we we've got a, a filter on site that produces demineralized water, but the feed source for the filter is Derbyshire tap water. Oh, right. It's come from Lake Vow Reservoir, wherever it's come from. Yeah. And it's it's the same with the whiskey. And it's a a good quality water for brewing and distilling. It's not too hard. It's not too soft. Uh, And it's one of the reasons why, traditionally, there have been so many breweries in this area. Yeah. Particularly when you look towards Burton. They came here for the quality of the water. Some of the cotton mills came here because of the quality of the water. Yeah. Uh, So the water quality is good. Um... And then the other thing is the, the the people that regulate anything that for human consumption, you have to use, in our case, a potable water source. So even if we had access to some remarkable natural spring yeah. water, we'd have to we'd have to be able to certify that that was potable sounded yeah. water. Um, and that's increasingly getting more and more difficult to do. And it doesn't really have a significant impact on our gin. We use it for dilution purposes, but um, other than that, the, the taste of our gin or yeah, the botanicals we use. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it is local tap water. Yeah.
coming back to the beginning. Not, we're not going to go through the colour of jelly thing. <laughs> I didn't, oh yeah, you, you pork pie, wasn't it? Yeah, I, really forgot. I swerved that one. Um, you're not very old to be running a a, a, a distillery. I was I was imagining some you know sort of ancient guy. Well, you've got a beard, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. you've got to, But I was expecting somebody of more mature years, right? Perhaps. Well, that's uh, decades of drinking whiskey. It keeps you. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. How old well, are that, you? How old? I'm 49. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm probably a bit older than I look. Yeah, no, no, he's still young to be running a distillery. Yeah. Well, the. Uh, How, where, well, where, where were you born? Were you born locally? I was actually born in Manchester, uh, right. but I moved to Derbyshire when I was four. Uh, so I've spent. We moved, my wife and I moved away for a few years, but I was born and raised here. I went to school in Duffield, Ecclesbourne School. Yeah. My three kids now go there. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty local. That's sort of eight miles away. Are they away getting from away with it with the teachers there, or do they remember the dad? There, 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 I think there are one or two teachers oh, still there yeah. um, helping out on the sidelines that yeah. were there when I was there. But, um, yeah, luckily the memory's not too good. <laughs> <laughs> um, at school, were you sitting there thinking, I want to run a distillery? No. What, what did you want to do? Yeah, no, school? not at all. I, I mean, I'm, I like using my hands, so yeah. um, I did things like design and metalwork yeah. at school. Um, when I left school, I, I went to university, I did a degree in engineering, that kind of just tied in with where my interests yeah. were. Um, mechanical engineering? Yeah, I did mechanical yeah. engineering. Yeah. Um, and... Then when I left university in 1991, the UK engineering sector was in a bit of a nosedive. Yeah. You know, people like, I guess, Rolls-Royce, you know, the big engineering firms were laying people off rather than kind of recruiting. So it, it, it just didn't look like a particularly attractive career yeah. at that point. Um, so I decided to do something different. Um, I actually trained to be an accountant uh, right. all, all very boring yeah. but uh, I think it was some friends of my dad said to me well if Max doesn't really know what he wants to do but he's not going to go into engineering then this is a qualification that can take you in all kinds of directions Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's true You know, I've got mates that are work they're accountants in Formula 1 I've got yeah. a mate that's an accountant that works in the music industry so you, you can end up going to lots of different sectors Yeah. Um, so I then kind of moved into a, a finance type world but I guess my engineering head kind of worked quite well in that yeah. environment. Um, but yeah, early in my 20s, my dad introduced me to whiskey. Um, and I just, I've always liked it. I wouldn't say I've drunk too much over the years. I enjoy drinking whiskey. Generally, sort of Scottish whiskey is what I've mm-hmm. kind of grown up on. Um, Are you a, a PT? I've got, we've got a listener who's going to be glued to this. Right. Because he's an absolute whiskey addict right if they, I don't there's probably some terminology that if you like whiskey you are a whiskey holic or something I, I don't know what they are no I don't know either um, and I, I think he's been here for a tasting oh, okay. he's actually been he's been for a tasting oh brilliant but um, yeah so he's going to be uh, I'm going to embarrass myself by saying something completely wrong and he's going to be on the phone straight away when <laughs> this goes out but are you a PT kind of or a space side or I think I'm saying right things here yeah, you are. No, that, that all makes sense. Um, I'm, <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm sort of agnostic. There's, yeah. there's lots of different types of whiskey that I like, and sometimes it just depends what mood I'm in. I don't drink that much heavily peated malt whiskey. Mm-hmm. 
but I do like it. Yeah. I just find if it's very heavily peated, for yeah. example, I can only have one of them, and then it just it's just not the kind of thing I feel I can drink a lot of. Yeah. Um, whereas if I was going to sit down or go out for an evening and just stick to drinking whiskey, yeah. I wouldn't go for something heavily peated. Yeah. Possibly something lightly peated, you know, even unpeated. What we're making is a lightly peated malt whiskey. Oh, okay. So we've we've taken that decision that that's going to be our core expression at the moment that's all we're making is lightly peated is that, that if again excuse my ignorance on this but is that from the water no so and we get this question a lot so you know there's nothing, oh, wrong, there's nothing, okay. there's nothing wrong with that question actually it's a good question to ask especially when we're doing a tour because you can guarantee at least 50 percent of the people in the room would probably want to ask the question yeah um but don't so the, the peatiness comes from the barley. So, right, okay. in order to make whiskey, you need three things. You need a grain in the UK, generally barley. You need water. Can you make it from something else? Oh, yes. What do the Americans do? Well, the, the Americans stuff? use corn, they use rye, they use oh, yeah, different rye, form, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Anything that's got a starch component, you can make alcohol from. Mm-hmm. Potatoes. Yeah, so yeah, pure in, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but tri- typically in this country, whiskey is made from barley. So you need barley, you need water, you need yeast. You just need those three things. Going back to the barley, though, it has to be malted before you can mash, which is the first stage in the process of making alcohol. And mashing is something that we do at the distillery. Breweries do the same thing. So the, the, the barley has to be malted at a maltsters before we can use it. That malting process, um, without going into the science, but the back end of the malting process requires some heat. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, someone discovered that when you're using an open fire to provide that heat, if you burn peat, right. then the barley takes on some of the characteristics of the okay. smoke coming off the peat fire. Yeah. So. Uh, is that why it is smoky? Then? Yes. Because sometimes it can be like TCP yeah. or it's got a real antiseptic yeah. flavour to it. But I suppose it, it is that, that smokiness, would, you would say, it's from a PT. Exactly. And people will they'll interchange between using the word mm. PT or smoky and some yeah. people, you know, it's the same thing for, yeah. you know, for, for a lot of people that drink, drink whiskey. But yeah, so a, a heavily peated malt whiskey the barley that it's been made with was made over a heavy peat fire, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So that's the difference. So the, the water does have a, a small bearing on the whiskey, but the peatiness that's in whiskey or the smokiness is from the barley. From the barley. You said you'd need a, malt, a maltsters? Yes. Or they're not in Derbyshire, I take it? No, there aren't. Uh, and there's not... Would, would, there, would there not be one in Burton? Do they... There used to be maltings in this area. Okay. Uh, but there aren't any more. It, it's become sort of concentrated, I guess, like many things in this life, because you need a certain economies of scale to yeah. run maltings. Yeah. Um, so the, we, get our malt, we get our malt barley from... Uh, and maltings in East Anglia, yeah. so not that far away. It's English barley, yeah. Um, and yeah, we get a delivery every six weeks. Yeah. So uh, the malting's done there. You do get it's very rare, but you do get one or two distilleries that's, that run their own maltings. It okay. was much more common years ago. Yeah. What's happened over but it's time? Transportation is yeah. the root of all evil. For yeah, me, and so. people have 
have also realised that it's much more economical to have a maltsters operating at full capacity and getting your tonnage from there rather than trying to run your own maltings just yeah. for your your immediate demand for the distillery. Yeah. Uh, but there are still a few distilleries that have their own maltings okay. that really want to, I suppose, make a virtue of the fact that they're controlling that whole process. Yeah. And if they've got a local source of barley, then, then that's great. So it, comparing to gin, we've got no botanicals, no... F- correct me if I'm wrong, no flavourings or anything like that that would go into whiskey other than the peat from the smoke and the barley flavourings and the water. There's nothing that would be added in like a, a gin. Is yeah, it more natural? Yeah, it's, yeah, so there's nothing added in in the same way that you're thinking about in terms of a gin. Um, not, not a flavouring? No, no, not a flavouring. Yeah. But... There's lots of things that we do along the way that have a significant influence on the style of the whiskey mm. that we're making yeah. and that make our, makes our whiskey different to anybody else. Okay. Um, so some Does of the, the barrels and things like that give a flavour to. They it? do, they do, and that the that kind of that the barrel selection is is really important. Um, do you do that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean we, Sean, our head distiller, and I spent some time. 18 months ago doing a lot of research into different cask types and what we wanted um, and thinking about the style of whiskey we wanted to make so and, and also getting some advice from people that have yeah. you know, been in the industry a lot longer than we have so our initial cask selection has been quite deliberate and it's hopefully going to produce the style of whiskey that we want yeah. in the long run and so far, the early signs are good because we've started tasting some of the stuff that we yeah. laid down uh, back in May last year. Yeah. Um, but the, so the barrel's important, but for us, we've, tr- we've really focused on making a, what we believe is a very good quality new make spirit, i.e. The, the, the single malt spirit that comes off the stills before it goes in the cask. And the, 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 the kind of concept is that we as a new distillery need to be in a position where we can sell a malt whiskey relatively young. We financially, we just can't. You can't put it down for twenty five. We, we can't. Years we can't sit here for ten yeah. years and wait for something yeah. to sell. So we've designed our whiskey to come to fruition young. So we are planning to sell a three year malt in twenty twenty one. Whether we do or not depends on whether we're happy at that point. But yeah. that's the way we've designed our whiskey. And there's loads of ways that there's loads of things that we factored into that design. But one of the th- what the concept is, if you put a good quality, smooth, relatively smooth, new make spirit into a cask on day one, mm-hmm. i.e., something that's already close yeah. to being palatable, yeah. then you're less reliant on it being aged in the cask for multiple years in order to come to fruition. Yeah. Traditionally. The, some of the older distilleries, they were creating alcohol back in a time when, let's just say, the science was less well understood. Mm-hmm. And for want of a better phrase, they may have just been making a rougher spirit. And there's nothing wrong with that. What you'll find is, though, you put a rougher spirit into a cask, it's going to have to age for longer for those, mm-hmm. for some of the, the rough edges to be rounded off, is a way to think about it. Mm-hmm. 
but the but one of the benefits of doing of putting in um, let's just say this rougher spirit is it does add some complexities to the final flavor of the whiskey in years to come so if you've got the benefit of being able to wait for 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. then you could you could deliberately make a slightly rougher spirit mm-hmm. and with the expectation that it's going to have a long time in maturation, but there's yeah. going to be some complexities associated with that roughness. I'm using kind of layman's terms. Yeah. Um, so, so we, are you, are we, you... we couldn't go down that route. So we focused on making a really good quality, smooth, new made whiskey that doesn't have to be aged for years and years and years. But are you planning? So you, you launch in in 2020. 2021. 2021. Sorry. Yeah. So you've got three years spirit sitting through that door. Over yeah. There. Have you got something that's going to come out in five years and something, or do you just keep that? Have you brewed? Brewed? Have you. What do you. Distilled. Distilled. Have you distilled enough so that you've got a three year, a five year, a ten year? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So over the probably the next decade, we will never be in a position in any year where we're selling more whiskey than we've made in that year. Mm-hmm. So currently, for the next three years, we're selling nothing. So we're building up a stockpile. When we get to three, when we get to three years, we'll just be on the cusp of having our early cast become three years yeah. old. So it'll be the back end of 2021 before we've got enough volume in cask to actually do a bottling. But for sake of argument, just throw some numbers out there. If we decided to do our first release and we want to put out 10,000 bottles, which is that's a decent release for a small distillery, that would require, broadly speaking about 35 casks of whiskey to be used to make those 10,000 bottles. We've already filled 240. Okay. This year, 2019 is gonna be our first full year of operation. Yeah. We're looking to fill 400 casks. So when you think about the future, you think about 2021 and our first release of 10,000 bottles, we might use 35 casks, but by the time we get to that point, yeah. we'll have 1,000 casks. Yeah. So hopefully in future years, we'll get to the point where, for sake of argument, we're selling 100,000 bottles a year. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It depends, what, it depends what income the business needs, depends what the market's like, etc. Um, but we're always going to be in a position in the early years where we're building up stocks. But what we don't have to do today yeah. is for every barrel that we fill, we don't have to decide today how long it's going to stay in that barrel. Okay. We, We've selected certain barrels that we think are going to come to fruition young in that sort of three to five year window. So we may have made the decision that that style of barrel isn't suitable for long term aging. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to decide right now whether you know, barrel number 76 is going to form part of something we sell in three years, four years, five years, six yeah. years. We can make that decision in the future. Yeah, if you find that the three years it produces the most smooth, fabulous whiskey, then you can release more of it. Yeah, you? yeah. And if we, if we can get our branding out there and people know that this whiskey is coming and they like it, then... You know, why hold on to yeah. more for year four and five if, if, if it's been really well received by yeah. the market um, and it's a good quality whiskey, then we'll, we'll and, and if we can sell 100,000 bottles, then you know, that's what we'll do. 400 casks, where on earth do you keep them and have you got a big padlock? Because <laughs> that, that would just, I mean, there's 400 casks of whiskey. 
Your insurance must be phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, we insurance is is phenomenal. But one of the one of the beauties of this site, as you've experienced on the way in here, is actually quite difficult to get a vehicle round to yeah. the distillery. Every cask of whiskey weighs about a quarter of a ton. Yeah. So the prospect of someone running off with it without having you know, lifting and heavy machinery yeah. is yeah. pretty low. Um, but security is important, and it's something that uh, customs and excise look at before yeah. they issue the distiller's license, because we're also the um, we're also holding on to duty that will become payable yeah. to customs and excise. Oh, so it, you don't have to pay that. You pay when you bottle. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Other, I mean, otherwise this business would would yeah. frankly never get anyone going yeah. into it. Because the rate of duty is £28.74 per litre of pure alcohol. Holy moly. And there are about 135 litres of pure alcohol in every barrel. So you can do the maths. Yeah. Um, but if, yeah, if we had to pay that up front, it, it would be crippling. Yeah. So the legislation is you pay the duty, basically you pay the duty when the product becomes saleable to the consumer, essentially, so when it's bottled. Mm-hmm. So for as long as we've got a cask sitting in storage, we're not paying duty on it. But obviously HMRC are extremely interested in how many casks we've got. Yeah, you have to report that. Because yeah, you could sell a cask. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. We, we have to keep very, very detailed records of how much alcohol yeah. we're making. Yeah. Different to gin, we have to keep those records for gin, but gin, HMRC know how much alcohol we're buying in. Yeah. With the whiskey, we're creating our own alcohol yeah. here from the barley. Yeah. Um, so we have to keep very detailed records. And HMRC, understandably come down every now and again just to check that yeah. we are we're a fit and proper business and we're doing things in the way that they yeah. want because we'll owe them a lot of money for yeah. years to yeah. come uh, but storage is an issue for many distilleries yeah you can imagine the room we're sitting in will probably hold if we pile them too high you'd probably get 50 casks in here yeah. something like that yeah so we're we're filling almost a room this size every five or six weeks. Yeah. So space is a big issue for many distilleries. The beauty of the space we've got here is that we took on much more space than I thought we needed to build the distillery, but it gave us a lot of storage space. But even so, in the short term, we're gonna run out of storage space here. The other beauty of this site though, is there's many other buildings. There's plenty of space, Yeah. yeah. And some of these buildings, they're old, they're damp, the roofs leak, yeah, you know, they're cold. you can do with it other than Perf- storage. Perfect. Yeah. If they, as long as they're secure, yeah. it's great for storing whiskey. Um, so, and, they, and they also maintain a constant temperature, which is also yeah. preferable. So we've, storage will be an ongoing issue for the business, but one of the things that I wanted to do when I was looking for a site is I wanted three things. I wanted to be next to a river. That's just to do with my romantic vision of where a whiskey distillery should be located. Yeah, yeah, I've got to agree, I've got to agree, yeah. Yeah, I, I, wanted, I wanted a nice brownfield site yeah. where, you know, there was some history there or there was something, there was some life about the site already that, in this case, we've rejuvenated. Um, and I wanted a site where we would at least have the prospect for as far forward as I could see of distilling and maturing our whiskey on that site. Mm-hmm. Because that whole, the, the, the sort of Derbyshire provenance for me is, is really important yeah. in terms of the spirits we're making. Yeah. And 
whether or not the science supports it in a massive way or not, if you take the casts somewhere else to mature them, then there's some influences from that environment yeah. which are no longer Derbyshire mm-hmm. or they're no longer this site. Mm-hmm. So that was all part of my kind of um, part of my quest in terms of trying to find a premises. But also, your quest must have included a head distiller. You Correct. said that you've got yeah. a head distiller. Yeah. Has he got a kilt on? Is he some guy that you've imported? <laughs> or are, were they, are there head distillers wandering around Belper? I don't know. Where'd... Yeah, well, it's interesting. So um, an easy option probably would have been for me to have gone, to sort of look towards Scotland yeah. and found someone with years of experience working in a distillery yeah. up there just because there's so many distilleries up there yeah. in relative terms. Um, but I decided I didn't want to do that because what I didn't want to do is end up in a position where we're making Scottish whiskey yes. in Derbyshire. Yeah. And the danger with bringing someone in that's got 20 years' experience, great in many respects, but probably what they're inclined to do is what they've always done. Yeah. And that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I, want, I deliberately wanted to find someone that was young that I could get on with that bought into what I was trying to do here in 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 Derbyshire or in the Peak District for the sort of the first time um and that also had a kind of a perspective that well you know let's create our own whiskey um, and be sort of dynamic enough and sort of flexible enough to look into all of that with me so so do you go on to youtube then and how to make whiskey or something no so 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 sean our head distiller um he was he was working at a distillery before he joined me Mm -hmm. but he was 27 when he came to work for me um and the how i found him is that it it is through heriot watt university so they do a course in brewing and distilling Mm -hmm. and so i approached uh, a lady called Dr. Annie Hill and asked her from their MSc programme did they have an alumni network that I could basically put an advert out saying yeah. whiskey distillery starting in Derbyshire head distiller needed um, and she was super helpful and she said look we can do that Max but before we do that one of my former students is from the Peak District area and I know he would love at least to hear about what you're doing because I know he'd like to move closer to home. Oh, he wasn't based here. He He wasn't based here. Yeah, so he's... Sean's from Macclesfield originally. But, um... So, she said, let me contact Sean. She didn't tell me his name at the time, but she said, let me contact Sean and if he's interested, I'll give him your email. And I heard from back from Sean very, very quickly. Um, And, yeah, the... We spoke on the phone, and he was just really interested in what I was planning to do. It just it just so happened that his best mate lives in Belper. You know, small coincidence. Him, Sean's quite a keen mountain biker, um, as am I, as is his mate. So one of the things that he's done with his best mate when he came to this area to meet him over the years is mountain biking Shiny Cliff Woods. So when I started to describe to Sean a site that I'd found that I thought had really good potential, he started to ask me, well, where is it? Because mm-hmm. he likes the Peak District, etc. So when I told him, he knew exactly where this site was. So there was all kinds of, I guess, coincidences yeah. that just, I guess it's one of those kind of fake situations where I happen to be put in touch with Sean. You know, we, we get on really well. He want, he'd, love, he'd love the opportunity to move back here. And 
he's a real sort of he's a real scientist he's, you know he's really all over the science of making whiskey so I thought well here's a guy that I mean, we can have a conversation about the style of whiskey we want to make mm. and why we're going to do something different to what perhaps you know, I might have done had we have had someone with you know, 20 years experience coming mm-hmm. down here um, so actually and I got Sean on board very early on so he's been with the company for nearly two and a half years so but part of that was because just as I was looking for a, just as I was thinking about distiller I was starting to talk to engineering firms about getting the distillery designed and engineered well that uh, another question was do you go to distillery.co.uk and just buy a load of pipes and stuff yeah well yeah I, so I didn't know so uh, yeah. there was a bit of a blank page in front of I'm, me I'm just uh, this is the bit that is, amazes me is that you suddenly think I'll open the distillery yeah. and it's kind of just evolves yeah. I mean it's like you say the coincidences of finding a guy who knows the woods yeah, at the back yeah, yeah. of... I mean, that, yeah, so that, that, that was a, a lovely find for us. So that was part one of my chat with Max Vaughan from uh, White Peak Distillery. Check out episode 37 for part two. How complicated is that? You listen to the Casimir Engine Show podcast. The Casimir Engine. Reliably mediocre.